Father, we thank you for their sacrifice, for their love for you. And God, we pray for the next generation of missionaries who would, who would rise up from among your people with a burden to carry your word to the ends of this earth. God, we pray for the ones that are on the field right now, uh, planting churches in, in cities where there are hardly any churches, going into regions and areas of the world that have never heard the gospel, working in very dark places. We ask for your protection. We ask that you would multiply their work. Uh, may they see a harvest. And Father, we pray for churches. We pray for churches like ours that pray and consider giving to these offerings that you would help us as individuals, as members, to see how even uh, what little we might be able to give can be used uh, to do great things in your kingdom and for your glory. And we pray that we would be willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary so that we might give to these offerings so that people might hear the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 19 today. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little story. So this past January, um, Kim and I decided to take a trip. I went up to a pastor seminar that was in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And on the way there, we stopped in Asheville, North Carolina, to visit a place called the Biltmore. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I got a picture of this house, I believe, is going to be on the screen. Maybe. There you go. Has anybody ever been to the Biltmore? It's enormous, isn't it? Unbelievable. Almost, almost unfathomable how large this home is. It's the largest single residence home in the entire United States of America. Been that way since it was completed in 1895. It was completed in 1895 after six years of construction. It was built by this guy right here, George Vanderbilt. I think I got a picture of him. Um, don't you like that mustache? Don't you think I, I need to grow a mustache like that, right? The one that sticks out. Um, the, when we went through that house, we saw some more, even more interesting pictures of that guy than that one. Had some very interesting mustaches. But um, it, it's a very small home. It's only 178,926 square feet. Um, I would not want to have that home, would you? That's a whole lot of home to clean, right? It is a French Renaissance chateau that includes 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, three kitchens, 65 fireplaces, an indoor pool, and a bowling alley. Quite the home, let me tell you. It required 30 to 35 full-time paid servants to keep the house running, not to mention the people that it took to run the farms. There was farms on the land. The man owned just thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. What is now called the Pisgah National Forest was all his land. And eventually, whenever he died, his wife sold the land back to the government, and the government took it and made it into a national forest. Um, as we walked around this place, I was really, I was kind of taken aback by the, the, just the size of it. I mean, it was really just grandiose. All the architecture was great and everything like that. But I can't really explain it other than to say that as I walked around this place, I just I kind of felt uneasy. I don't know why. It just was weird. I just I felt like just something's not right. You know, and as I thought about this place, I just kept thinking, man, this just, I don't know. I couldn't, exp I couldn't really explain to you what it was. I just, there was something that just didn't feel right in my, in my soul, in my spirit, as I looked at this guy's magnificent house, which was just really a work of art. Um, but we finished our half-day tour of this place. We hopped in the car, and we finished the drive to Wake Forest. And as we were on the way out of Asheville, uh, we passed a sign for a place called The Cove. And I was reminded in that moment that Asheville had another famous resident at one time, and his name was Billy Graham. And as I thought about that on that drive, because, you know, when you're driving down the road, you have a lot of time just to think 
Um, I, I thought about that there really is, this is kind of like a, a tale of two lives. You know, you have this one guy, George, George Vanderbilt, who was born into wealth and who gained even more wealth as he lived, lived his life, who decided to use that wealth to set out to build the largest home in America. It's still the largest home in America for his wife and his one child. The sad part was he died in 1914 at the age of 51. He only lived in the house for 19 years before he died. But the only reason I know George Vanderbilt's name is because of the house that he left behind. I wouldn't, I'm sure he was a good man. I'm sure he did some nice things. He probably gave to some nice causes, but I don't remember any of them. I don't know any of them. All I know him for is the fact that he built a massive house. But on the other hand, you have a man like Billy Graham, who was born into poverty, no doubt, um, probably by the end of his life had a decent house. He probably made a decent amount of money by the time that he had died. But I know his name not because of a house that he built, but because of the impact he had made on thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of souls who heard him preach the gospel in his crusade ministry. And so we have one man who seemed to have a whole lot of earthly treasure, and we have another man who seemed to have built a, a massive pile of heavenly treasure. This morning, that's where we come in Scripture to verse 19. And I want us to consider the treasure of our lives. In fact, I want us to think even bigger than that. I want us to think about this question. What kind of legacy are you going to leave behind when you depart from this earth? When your earthly life is over and you depart for your heavenly home, what exactly is, is going to be your legacy? Whose kingdom are you building? Yours or the Lord's? For what will you be remembered? I ask myself these questions a lot. You know, back when we were studying the Lord's Prayer a few weeks ago, you remember we studied that one statement in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. And it's a reminder to us that it's not about my kingdom. It's not about your personal kingdoms on this earth. Our lives are to be set to building and growing and expanding whose kingdom? God's kingdom. It's about seeing God's kingdom come to this earth, not our own. Now we come to verse 19 in which Jesus gives us three quick illustrations all of which can't come to the same exact conclusion. Christ followers, we as Christ followers, will, should be people who set our lives on building God's kingdom and not our own. We're called to have a kingdom mindset, to, to build heavenly treasure, to set our eyes fully on the goodness of Christ, to surrender to our heavenly Father as our only master. Let's look in verse 19. Let's read the whole thing, and then we're going to come back and talk about it in pieces. Verse 19 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves <coughs> treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he will, eat, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's talk about these three illustrations real, real quickly this morning. Number one, let's, let's look at the heavenly treasure that Jesus commands us to build up. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so he's speaking about treasure here. Now, if, if you were to go ask the kids in our church, if you would go ask my boys what is treasure, they would probably tell you the stuff that's below the X on the map, right? The thing that the pirate is going to go dig up below that X that's drawn in the sand on that random island. And we might think of treasure only as being money, but really the word here in Scripture that means treasure is an all-inclusive term. It could really be anything. It obviously could be money. It could represent possessions. It could represent position, accomplishments, our family even, relationships. It could be anything that your heart and your mind desires. Anything that you could pursue, anything that you could hold as valuable could really be seen as treasure. And Jesus divides that treasure into two categories. He says there's earthly treasure. That's the stuff that can rust, can, destroy, can be destroyed, can be stolen, can decay. And then there's the heavenly treasure, which is stuff that can't be stolen. It can't decay. It can't be lost. It, it can't rot. And ultimately, the difference between those two kinds of treasure come down to one simple test. Will it last for eternity? Can it stand the test of time? Will it last? Will it live beyond your earthly life or not? Now, I'll give you a little disclaimer here. This is not some type of prohibition against money in general. It's not some kind of prohibition against personal property, against having an emergency fund, uh, against enjoying life's goodness and God's good creation. You could find scripture that all supports all of those things. We are to be people who save money. We are to be people who work hard. God wants us to enjoy what he has created this is a warning strictly against making earthly treasure the center of your life, making it the focal point of your life, making it what consumes your desires, what consumes your heart. Jesus makes it clear. Look in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, we know from Scripture, from studying through Scripture, that heart doesn't just mean your emotions. We oftentimes think of, of our heart being our emotional side. But really, when Scripture speaks of heart, it's talking about the entirety of who you are. It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. And in a sense, Scripture's giving us a little bit of an um, MRI, so to speak, I guess you could say. You know, it's amazing what we can do, what doctors can do these days. You know, oftentimes when I go make hospital visits... I'll talk to the people in the hospital and they'll tell me, well, you know, I've got to go down for a CT scan or I've got to go down for an MRI or they just did an x-ray on me or they just did an ultrasound. And it's really amazing what doctors can do and how they can do all these tests they can see inside of your body without ever putting a scalpel to your skin. Isn't that a good thing? Aren't you glad they can figure that stuff out before they have to go cut you open? Uh, that's, a, that's a good thing that we can do all these things. It's amazing what we can do, things that we couldn't even imagine doing 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, things that weren't even on the radar as to what could be done. Well, long before all that, Jesus had a solution for how we could see our spiritual hearts. And this is the solution. If you want to see your heart, find your treasure. It's really that simple. If you want to know where your heart is, if you want to see what is really your heart, who you really are, all you got to do is look at what you treasure. It's to think about and examine what it is that you hold high in this life. 
John Stott said, our heart follows our treasure, whether up to heaven or down to earth. And Henry Scovel says, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its desire. And so Christ is warning us against becoming so earthly-minded that we become no heavenly good, that we become so set on the things of this world and the pursuit of earthly treasure that we fail to ever think about heavenly things. Now, unfortunately, Jesus doesn't really clearly define what heavenly treasure is here. All he simply says is it's, it's something that can't be stolen, can't be lost, can't rot, can't decay. But we can kind of gather what he's probably talking about here. I'm guessing that heavenly treasure is going to look something like Christ-like character. Something like living in obedience to his commands. Something like an increase in our faith and our hope and our love and our compassion and our charity. To grow in the knowledge of Christ. To work to bring others into God's kingdom through evangelism. To invest in the lives of others and disciple people to become more like Christ. To become more committed in their faith walk to minister to others in their times of need, when people are in sorrow, when people are sick, when people are broken, when they've gone through tragedy, to use our time, our talent, our money, our energy to invest in God's kingdom and in God's work, like things like the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Those are all earthly actions, you know, but they all have heavenly consequences. Now, does it mean that we ought to not have jobs? That we shouldn't buy homes or we shouldn't save money? Absolutely not, because we can find Scripture that supports all those things. But it means that everything we do in this life ought to be pointing to the next life. Ought to be pointing to our attempt to build heavenly treasure. The way we go about our lives, the way we work, the way we live as a spouse, the way we parent, the way we carry out every relationship, every job that we have, every task that we do. And so you want to know how you can figure out what your treasure is? Here's some questions that I, that I found that I thought maybe would help you do that. Ask yourself this. What is it that you hold most tightly in this life? What is it that you really do care about the most? What gives you the most satisfaction? Or think about this question. What is it that you admire in other people? What is it that you envy in other people? You know, the truth is, is that we often judge other people by the standards that we set for ourselves and the desires that we have for ourselves. That's how we oftentimes as human beings rate other people. What is it that you fret about the most? What is it that fills your mind when you have nothing else to do? What is it that occupies your thoughts when you found, find you have a little downtime? You know, somewhere in the answer to those questions you probably will begin to get a sense of what is your treasure? What is it that you're holding high? What is it that you're caring the most about? And then the question simply is, is that going to last? Is that treasure going to last? Because consider this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we find what the test is, the test of our work. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, Silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through 
inspired? Are you living your life in such a way that your treasure will lead to a heavenly reward? Or is your life consumed by earthly things? Jesus tells us here to pursue heavenly treasure. But he doesn't stop just with treasure. He now turns his attention to our eyes. Heavenly eyes is what he tells us to have. Verse 22 says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. And so Jesus gives us this illustration on eyes. And I had a little hard time at first figuring out exactly what he's trying to tell us here. Um, and then I, what I realized was that Jesus sandwiches this illustration right between an illustration on treasure and an illustration on money. And I think that's a good clue to us that this is exactly the same idea, but from a slightly different perspective, a slightly different angle. Now, we know physically that our eyes are the lamp to our body, right? They are the organ that allows light into our eyes and to our minds so that we can see to do things, correct? It's pretty difficult to, to go around with, with, without your eyes, right? And if you don't think so, just try blindfolding yourself and walking around for a little while. You know, a shop teacher one time was trying to explain to his class, his, his woodworking class, why it was so important to wear the safety their safety glasses. And he told them, he said, you know, you can walk with a wooden leg and you can work with a wooden hand, but you can't see with a wooden eye. It's very true. Uh, everything you do is affected in some way, shape, or form by your eyesight. You're walking, you're working, your relationships, sports that you like to play, entertainment that you, um, you know, consume or things that you do, your family life. If your eyes went physically dark, if your eyes went out, what could be the most simple task could become an extremely difficult task. The task, for instance, the task of walking across your house. If your eyes suddenly did not work, what would normally be a simple thing to do might become a deadly thing, especially if your kids left the Legos out, you know? I mean, it's difficult to go around without your eyes working. Well, Christ tells us here that our eyes are the lamp into our soul. The lamp into our soul. And we know from Scripture that our eyes sometimes are synonymous with our heart. And I believe what Jesus is attempting to say here is that the focus of our heart and our eyes, are, our heart and our lives are set by our eyes. Whatever we set our eyes on is what our hearts pursue. And so this is really a question about what are you pursuing? Once again, very similar to the last thing, or the treasure that you're pursuing. What is the thing? What is the lifestyle that you are pursuing? You know, um, a few years ago, um, I brought a bow and arrow in here and did like an illustration with a bow and arrow back when we were in the gym, I think it was a renovation. And, um, you know, it was like a Nerf bow and arrow that my boys had gotten for Christmas. And, well, we've moved up now. Um, we've gone from the Nerf bow and arrow to this like actual kids trainer bow and arrow with like real arrows with little practice tips that are metal practice tips. Um, and it's the real deal, let me tell you. Um, we've gone to like shooting these foam block targets and milk jugs and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of fun. Um, but now that it's the real deal, aim is very important. It's extremely important. I mean, a misplaced shot could do some serious damage. I mean, one slip of the hand and we can have a Caleb kebab, you know. It would not be a good moment. 
Um, but you know, the trajectory of that arrow, I have found, most often follows the eye of the one holding the bow. The arrow flies in the direction that you shoot it. And if you want to understand your aim in life, you need to follow your eye. What are you looking at? What do you hold as the goal of your life? What are you pursuing? Where do you hope to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? What do you hope to have accomplished? Where do you hope your life has arrived? I mean, is it the American dream of two kids, a white picket fence, a paid-for house, a dog that doesn't bite, and a good 401k? Or is it just a little more than you already have? I mean, what is it that you're really, truly pursuing? You know, um, several times we took our youth kids uh, canoeing on the uh, Wolf River. And if you've never been out there, I'd, I'd, really, I'd really recommend it. It's really nice out there. Um, you know, we think of the Wolf River, and sometimes we think of the Wolf River that's in Memphis, and it's big and it's murky and probably three-eyed fish in there and things like that. Um, not very clean looking. But if you got to Fayette County, it's really nice. And uh, inevitably, every time we would go, um, you know, we would always see critters, you know. And last year when we went, we were on the hunt for this alligator that was supposedly in the Wolf River. And I was really disappointed because we didn't see the alligator. I really wanted to. I wanted to see him at a distance, but I did want to see that alligator. Um, but every time we would canoe down that river, uh, we would always wind up seeing a snake or two in the trees. You know, they'd be up in the trees. It was always April or so when we would go. The water would be a little cold. They'd be hanging in a tree, warming in the sun. And, uh, you know, I, at first, you know, when you see a snake, you, like, start, you, you point at it and all this kind of stuff. But the weird thing happens when you get teenagers in a canoe. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you ever tell a teenager where the snake is in the tree, it's like a magnet has been attached to their boat and all they can do is go toward that tree. It happens every single time that as soon as you say, there's a snake over there, they will do everything they can to paddle away from it. But do you know where their boat's going to go? Right to that tree. Straight to it, like a beeline to that tree. And so we found, like, you just can't tell them. Just don't even tell them. Just sit there and make sure that they didn't fall in their boat. But you don't point to it because as soon as they point to it, they look at it. And you know what happens when you look at it? That's where you wind up going. I was talking to my wife about this and... She told me about something Lisa Turkhurst had said in their Bible study that I thought was very true. You'll steer where you'll stare. And that is the truth in our lives. That what it is that we stare at, that we want, that we set our eyes on, is the direction in which we will steer our lives. And so this is not just about what we the treasure that we've built up, but Jesus is warning us about where our eyes are focused, what our eyes are set on. What is it that we're continually chasing? Is it our Lord and His kingdom and His desires? Or is it our own kingdom and our own desires? And so we've talked about treasure, we've talked about eyes, and now Jesus talks, turns to talking about masters. And he warns us here, he, he tells us here that we must make sure we're submitting ourselves to our heavenly master. Verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, let me let you know up something up front. When Scripture talks about money, money is amoral. It does not have morals. 
Um, you can place a dollar bill up here and money will not commit sin. It will not do anything but lay there. All money does is take on the desires and the hearts of the user, of the one who holds it. If our hearts and our eyes are right and we're looking toward the Lord and we're following His will and His way, you know what our money will do? Godly things. But if our eyes and our hearts are dark, as Jesus described it, then our money is going to follow selfish desires. And Jesus warns us here about becoming servants to money. He says you cannot serve God and money. And that may sound a little bit odd because you may think, well, you know, who in the world serves money? Um, but, you know, the truth is that you begin by thinking that your money is serving you, but in the end, you end up serving your pursuit of money. He talks here about you can't serve two masters. And I know there's probably a host of people in this world that think, well, I'm doing perfectly fine serving two bosses. You know, I, I serve God on Sundays and I serve money on Monday through, Monday through Saturday, and I'm doing perfectly well. But when you say that, when you believe that, I believe what you are revealing is that you have a misunderstanding of what Jesus means when he says master. You know, it was Oz Guinness, the um, Christian author, who said that for many Christians even... Um, they don't live their lives by Psalm 23 as we read it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They live their lives by this psalm. The Lord is my banker. My credit is good. He giveth me the keys to his strong box. He restoreth my faith and riches. He guideth me in the paths of prosperity for his name's sake. It's true. But all that reveals that you have a misunderstanding of what it means when Jesus says here, that God is to be your master. Jesus isn't telling us here that God wants to be your boss. He doesn't just want to be your boss. You know, the truth is, is that when you have a boss, you can clock out and go home. That boss doesn't own you. That boss doesn't rule your whole life. That boss doesn't tell you everything you have to do. You might have to follow his instruction when you're at work, but you can shut off your phone when you leave. You can turn off the email. He doesn't rule your life 24-7. You can disobey your boss and get away with it. He might sign your paycheck, but he doesn't own you. But a master does. When he refers to a master here, I believe he's mostly referring to the master of a slave. And Scripture makes it clear that as Christians, we are slaves to God. That he owns us. And God desires, He commands us here, He tells us here that God is to be our only master. You cannot serve two masters. You can only have one master. And if God is not your complete master, then He is not your master at all. You cannot serve God and money. You see, our God is a jealous master. He will not compete with any other. Jesus himself said it when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God wants complete reign over our lives. Every corner of our lives, every inch of our being, God wants control of. And the truth is, if you want true freedom, you got to find the right master. You know, Jesus talked a lot about how his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He, he, he told us that he promises joy and hope and peace. But to find that, what do you have to do? Surrender to 
the master. Not the master of money, not the master of pursuits of this world, but the master of God in heaven. And so where's your treasure? Let me ask you, where are your eyes focused today? Where is your life taking you? Who is your master? You know, as I, as I thought and prayed through this this week, this is what I came to realize. Everything we do is spiritual. Everything. You know, sometimes we can, we can think that we have a, a church life and we have a work life and we have a family life and we have our fun life and all these different compartments of our lives. But the reality is that's, that's a lie. Everything we do is spiritual. Every decision, every thought, every word, every action, every purchase, every desire, every motive, every reaction points to what we treasure. It points to what we hold dear. It points to just how much we have truly surrendered our lives to the Lord. Are we amassing treasure for ourselves or for God? Do we have our eyes set on His kingdom or on ours? Are we serving our Heavenly Father as our only master? Or in our kingdoms, are we the master? Are we building a kingdom that will outlive ourselves? There's an author, American author by the name of Wendell Berry, and he wrote a poem called Manifesto. And in that poem, he, he wrote these words that I thought were very um, accurate for this. He said that we as in our lives ought to invest in the millennium Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. I want you to think about that for a moment. Have you ever seen a sequoia tree? They're massive things. You realize that the lifespan of a sequoia is somewhere between 1,800 to 2,700 years? That the oldest living sequoia we believe in the United States is 3,500 years old. As in it was here before Jesus was here. And so if you think about that as a perspective, that I ought to live my life in such a way that I'm planting sequoias. You know what that's saying? That we ought to live our lives, that we ought to invest our lives in such a way that our impact outlives us. that we're investing in a kingdom not of our own, but in the Lord's. When your life is over and your days are done, what's the legacy you're going to live behind? Is it your own kingdom or is it the Lord's? Would you pray with me? Father God, in this world, in this day and age, it can be so easy to become consumed with thoughts of prosperity, of comfort, of fame and fortune, of accomplishments. But God, all those things are meaningless because they're earthly. And they only last for this lifetime. But God, you called us to be believers who would live our lives to build heavenly treasure. fill our eyes with goodness, with your goodness, with your good purpose for our lives. 
Father, I pray as we come to this point of invitation today that you would open our hearts to our to us and allow us to see just how closely we're following you or we're not following you. Maybe we've become caught up in earthly things and we're wasting our time and energy on things that don't really matter, don't really count, things that sure won't outlive us. When all around us, there are opportunities for us to invest in heavenly treasure, to build a spiritual legacy, to pour into the lives of others in such a way that they would come to know Jesus. Father, I pray that we would live wisely and we would surrender fully. God, if there are strongholds that need to come down in the lives of individuals today, I pray that they would confess those things. If there are idols that need to be removed from our lives because they're pulling our eyes away from you, I pray that we would destroy those things today. I pray we would surrender to the one true heavenly master. Father, I pray that if there be any in this room today who needs to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they would not hesitate one bit when we come to this time of invitation and they would come down this aisle. And if there are any others that need to make decisions, Lord, I pray that you would give them the boldness to step out today, whether that be for church membership, or confession of sin, repentance, rededication, baptism. God, give them the confidence to know that it's the Spirit that is speaking to them in this moment today. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?